You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast about the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the triumphant conclusion of season two, spine number 27, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, featuring exquisite long pig, multiple wet t-shirt contests, the largest cocaine budget in horror history, and only one actual Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Martin. Yes. Do your thing, cuz! The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths. In particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Red River Rock and Roll Request Line, this is Stretch. On an open request line on Kay Oakland in Burke Burnett, Texas, Red River Rock and Roll from the tip top of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Welcome back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready to chainsaw some motherfuckers? I'm very ready. So, this is the finale of season two, and we couldn't think of a better way to basically uh, spend this time with you guys than bringing it all back to Texas again. Also because, frankly, kind of like our Scream episode, we get a new Texas chainsaw in 2022, which kind of feels like a miracle in a weird way. Yeah. It's um it it's one of those films similar to Prey, the new um Predator film that's gonna be on Hulu. Right. It kind of snuck out. Like it snuck up on it. It's like I'd heard they were working on it. And then I think it was a, a month ago, you're like, hey, that comes out in February. And right. I knew they were working on it, but I had no idea it was so close. And I didn't even know it was a Netflix film. I thought it was theatrical. You're the one who told me. And I felt very blindsided in a good way. I was like, oh shit, like. I well, get one so soon. I had a, a moment too, because apparently I, th- I think the Hellraiser reboot that Bruckner is doing is done as well. Yeah, it comes and out, that like comes two out months. this year. So like we actually have, and you better believe it, we're going to do a Hellraiser episode too. And Bruckner kicks movie. ass, so it's going to be good. Yeah, like, the Nighthouse rules so fucking hard. But yeah, it's kind of incredible just thinking about the fact that the first movie came out almost 50 years ago. And like it almost makes the Texas Chainsaw 
franchise, kind of like the Bond of slashers in a weird way. Only it's with a guy who wears lady skin on his face. Although I guess I could see James Bond doing that too at some point. It's a really, it's a really strange franchise. Like I, we possibly watched, the strangest. It's I think it's I think it's hands down the strangest because you with the other horror franchises you could tell that the producers were like okay here's the tack we're taking right for a while so you have like Halloween where it's like one and two are, are a, a unit you have three which is this they tried it and they you know didn't work for them um and then four five and six the thorn trilogy and you see these kind of like these movements and right. and the Texas chains I watched all of these in a kind of in a random order. Um, and a couple I'd never seen before is really all over the place in terms of, of ownership, in terms of the studios working on it, in terms of the creators, like creators come and go people who are involved with the original and they come back to produce films later. And it's a really schizophrenic um, series in terms of like how they change um, between films. Well, and it's sort of amazing that like it was made for more or less like, $60,000 in Austin, Texas or outside of Austin, Texas, where we're sitting we right say, now, where we're sitting right now and then distributed by the mafia, Brianston releasing <laughs> exactly. <laughs> who also, uh, they released deep throat too. That yep. was the other big one where they saw basically deep throat and Texas chainsaw become like a huge, uh, generator of legitimate income for the mafia. Cause that was the Columbo, the Columbo crime family, I believe was the ones mm -hmm. behind that. And then, but you have the $60,000 independent movie and then nothing for over a decade. And then you have Canon films coming in and, and giving Toby Hooper free creative reign. And a lot of money. And a lot of money to make one of the strangest sequels of all time. And then you have another silent period where... Uh, like four years new yeah. line comes in and they try to basically reinvent it as like for the Freddy Krueger crowd is yep. probably the easiest way to say it is like even the music in the new line, Texas chainsaw, which is Leatherface Texas chainsaw massacre three, which also as I put this on our Twitter feed, one of the greatest teaser trailers of all time. Have you ever seen the Excalibur? I just watched it again this week. It's one of my favorites. It's crazy. And, and, the, and the great, because it, it's like, it starts out, and it's it's like this, it's kind of like the end of Friday the 13th. It's this very like lyrical music. Right. And it's just this chunky guy standing by the side of a lake. The camera's moving in. He's just staring off into the middle distance like a Michael Mann protagonist. Yeah. With his face. And he just, but he just, it, it's very just like, oh, this is a nice little like romantic film. And then like, yeah, this, this hand, like the lady in the lake comes out with the, the, uh, the saw like a gold plated a, in like, like John Borman gigantic chainsaw. It's like John Borman's Excalibur. Like yeah. You said like, and it comes out and then it's this great. He turns and the camera just like zooms in on it. And then it becomes a graphic of this like broken apart face. It's not in the movie at all. It's completely different design for the mask in the final movie. Sure. Uh, but what, well, a, what a trailer. It reminds me a lot of the teaser that Paramount put out for, uh, Friday the 13th part eight, Jason takes Manhattan where it's just that crane shot over the pier and it's Jason looking out over the skyline yep. and you hear dun, 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 dun. and then he turns the same, yep. almost the same exact way that Leatherface does. Like the setup is very, very, very similar. But again, like anybody who's seen Jason takes Manhattan knows that 
not much of that movie actually takes place in New York at all. It's in it's in Vancouver. Yeah, exactly. And then one scene in Times Square. Yeah, when they take a prom cruise <laughs> from a lake, Crystal Lake, to, to New York City, which geographically doesn't even make sense. But you know what? That's a whole other podcast. So then you get to the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw 4, which would later be released as uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the next generation to capitalize on Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey's kind of burgeoning fame. Let's say that was an indie that brings it back home to Kim Texas. Hank, Kim because, Hankel did yeah, it. Yeah. One of the original writers and co-producers, but he comes in and is kind of like, it feels like him attempting to reclaim the franchise for himself and say like, yeah, Toby did direct this and he went on to do well, saying fame might be a stretch, but infamy, I would say because to, Toby to, to bigger things, Toby Hooper, one of the strangest careers of all time. And yeah, Kim Hankel did not do a whole lot because I believe he wrote, uh, I believe co-wrote and at least produced, uh, is it last night at the Alamo? Mm. That great kind of eighties independent movie. And yeah. then really didn't have a whole lot else going on at the time and was tapped to come back uh, to write and direct like a, a Texas Chainsaw sequel. Because again, the, the franchise had been kind of languishing in uh, hell for a while there. I believe when Hankel uh, was tapped to do it too, he was like teaching or something. Mm. Like he wasn't working in film. I know that much. Anyway, then you get to the remakes are mm -hmm. next, which is Platinum Dunes and Michael fucking Bay making like the glossiest redneck exploitation of all time and really packaging these movies for like a, a mall crowd. Yep. And then so you get two of those because you get uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a straight up remake with some let's say wrinkles or, or curveballs that they yeah. throw into the narrative. And then you have the beginning, uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is Jonathan Liebsman, right? The yeah. guy who made Darkness Falls. And, and, and he like, was like and an and effects guy. For yeah, a while he did uh, Battle for Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he did a lot of like that level of like like screen gems kind of size movies. Real junky kind of like genre programmers. Yeah. But you get two of those, and then after that, you get the Lionsgate entries, which are really bizarre, because um, you have Texas Chainsaw 3D, and that's like 2014, Yeah, and then you get Leatherface, which is technically 2017, but kind of hung around for a while there, because it was done for a while, and there was a lot of creative squabbles mm. over that movie, and then... You have another period of silence, but basically half a decade, and now we have a brand new movie on fucking Netflix. So you've gone, there's a very long-winded way of illustrating how one franchise went from $60,000 independent millimeter, 16 millimeter independent movie shot in like 110 degree heat. In, in the middle of Texas summer, everybody who worked on it fucking hated it, got <laughs> got injured on it. Like dirt. They even talk about uh, one of the people I want to quote about this movie is Joe Bob Briggs, who in his book, Profoundly Disturbing, goes pretty in depth into the history of the movie's making 
uh, on top of his just excellent criticism of the movie itself. But he points out how like everybody on the, on the movie was injured. There was almost like a full scale, like mutiny against Toby Hooper because uh, he made the guy who played grandpa basically have a 26 hour work day in the makeup because he wouldn't let him out of it. And that guy almost had like a stroke on set. Apparently it's like the stories of the room. Yeah. You know, like, like real people, insane yeah. fucked up shit. And then, uh, you know, it goes on to be on the biggest streaming platform in the world at like, what is the new one? Like, I feel like it's like a $20 million movie. It, that might be even shooting high. They, I know cause they shot it, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later. They shot it. This one also, I believe in Bulgaria where they shot Leatherface. There's a relationship right. there because Bulgaria as, as Dolph has done for years is a, a place where you can shoot very cheaply. Well, it's, that's where the majority of like the DTV action stuff yeah. that Lionsgate Yep. distributes a lot of the time is produced. Like a lot of those Scott Adkins movies and mm -hmm. stuff are all shot in like Bulgaria, Romania, yep. Ukraine, <laughs> like all these fucking places that like they sort of dress up kind of like how you mentioned with Vancouver, uh, <laughs> doubling, uh, for New York city and in, in Friday the 13th part eight, like that's what Bulgaria is now, but it's just for like, Bruce Willis movies where he's paid $2 million to show up for two days of work. And then the rest of the movie, it doesn't involve him at all. It's, um, the geezer teasers. I think I call them. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause like there's, you know, this is again, this is this newest one is produced and co-written or the stories from Freddie Alvarez and his, and his, his team. Right. Um, and, he has a very Eli Roth-esque kind of like cadre of dudes that he works with where they all rotate in and out, but you can't really tell the difference like stylistically. Yeah, because I mean, like, I think that Fede is like the better director of the group. Um, sure. And like you could tell when he it's like any kind of any kind of showrunner too, like when they come to write the episode or, you know, actually do it themselves. But like, yeah, he, you know. It felt, and I, I want to kind of save a full discussion for this, but very similar to what he did with Evil Dead, where it's like, take a franchise that is known for a certain thing. Evil Dead was coming from a goofy place. This, you know, Texas Chainsaw is coming from a very, like, at least at its core, a kind of heart, more hardcore it, where where it began, and then right. he. Does He's the 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 king edgelord supreme of like modern horror. Yeah, like all of his stuff is just based around reclaiming either direct franchises or say sub genres within horror, like the home invasion movie with the don't breathe yeah, films. Yeah. It's all about reclaiming them and just making them as like gory mean. and like in your face and mean as humanly possible. Like he's almost splatterpunk or like modern splatterpunk in a weird way, which is interesting because we were texting this week because that we were, I was just, you know, watching all of these and, you have David Shaw, who worked on two of these films, who right. was one of the founders of the splatterpunk genre. In, in I believe they even credit him with coining the term itself. I think he created that yeah. term, and, and he, you know, he's, he wrote the Crow, the the, the screenplay, which is amazing, um, but also has written some really. He's not Edward Lee hardcore, but he's written some really hardcore horror. Well, he's a lot like Joe Lansdale. Like I know yeah. that they're good buddies to where yes, like they, they, are they just write buddies. these very hard edged horror stories that don't have. Have, let's say the moral filter that even like a Stephen King possesses. Yeah, the sentimentality is gone. Yeah, they they feel like works made 
by people who are kind of on the edge a little bit. But where the one thing I will say with my Splatterpunk comparison with Fide too is that like he, especially with this movie, feels like he's actively provoking you to where like <laughs> with Lansdale and Shao, they are, their work actually feels like it, it, it is provoking, but it comes from a genuine place of like, I have something to, I really need to express or get off my chest where Fidesz almost like a bratty or like, I'm going to fuck with you a little bit. And isn't it cool if I sprayed jizz on like this, this woman's face the entire time at the end of a movie? Well, yeah. Cause you, um, you were texting me because you saw it first, the newest one. And, and the comparison to Lansdale is interesting because Lansdale, I think in the end is like, here's the story I want to tell. And it right. may not be the most PC thing. Like when we interviewed him is like, he's not a provocateur, I think in the least. Um, no, he's it, just, he is a, a raconteur if anything. Yeah. Like he just wants to tell you a story the entire time. He, he and he's a, and he's just that very much like, let's sit around the fire, you know? And right. It's, you know, I'd, I would actually love to see a Joe Lansdale. Where Texas today J- would actually throw gas on the fire while you're <laughs> sitting in front of it, just trying to eat a hot dog. Yeah. You're just like, I'm just here to have a good time, man. Like just, like, <laughs> you're being a dick, you're dude. Being a, you're being an asshole. And you know, um, but I like his, movies i don't like the evil dead movie that much i i enjoy the gore in it but i think it's a one trick pony i think the gore is kind of all that that movie has i actually do like don't breathe don't breathe two is a, is a drop off but i like don't breathe i like stephen lang a whole bunch in it i like uh 40 year old teenager dylan <laughs> minette also of the scream franchise dude since we since you brought that up like now like just I, popping Viagra in between takes, hoping to get laid later that night. The first review I ever wrote, um, like professionally was for don't breathe. And it was, it was at South by 2016. Was that when it still didn't have a title? It didn't. That's when I saw it. Untitled Fede Alvarez. It was a midnighter. It was like the first right. or second night of the fest. And it was, it was a cool, I, I, but I great audience movie. Everyone was in on it. I did not like the the sexual. I just didn't like the sexual violence at the end. Oh yeah, and, and it's I, horrible. But I mean, that's prime Fide Alvarez. And shit. I didn't know that yet because I had I had oh I had seen Evil Dead and I and I really actually that's my favorite of thing, things he's done. I really like the Evil Dead remake a lot. I agree, the gore is like a big component of that. But I love the look. I love the New Zealand like the whole. Which ended up being used again for Ash vs. Evil Dead. These like these lush greenscapes of New Zealand. These and it's this kind of like almost like swamp thing level of of, of foliage. Um, so I like that one a lot. Don't breathe. I at the end and I rewatched it recently. I was writing a script that was kind of like another home invasion thing with a with a friend and um, it didn't hurt. I didn't dislike it as much the second time. I think I kind of had had calmed myself. And I knew it was coming because it really, sure. and it, it was this thing where I've always had a problem with like sexual violence is being used as like a, oh, this is the thing that is always effective. You know, it's like, okay, well, how do we take this up a notch? All right, let's have her in fucking stirrups, like in these like ropes. And then and a, a vial a, a, full of jizz. And a fucking turkey baster with jizz. <laughs> That's with, right, it is a turkey with baster. With jizz I forgot being, about like, that. being like heated on the stove. <laughs> and I'm just so like, gross. and it's just like mean and gross and not in a fun, like, haha. I was just like, ugh. See, I actually found it, it is mean and gross and not in a fun, haha way. I should say that. But I, I giggle. It's the same reason why I like a lot of like S. Craig Zoller's stuff. It's right. I giggle because like you're sitting there like, dude, okay, I get it. Like, but 
I do admire the fact that you're being this big of a fucking asshole in the name of like just <laughs> committing to the bit, let's say. Right. Absolutely. Um, so here's what I propose to get us uh, yeah, I back to, know to the what Texas you, what Chainsaw you were thinking sequels. About in terms of order. So I don't want to talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I realize is weird since the central movie of this episode is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, but my idea is this, is that so much has been written, dissected, talked about like there's multiple documentaries like even like david gregory from severin has made a documentary about texas chainsaw you have the family portrait stuff which i actually did watch in preparation for this which was like a late eight late 80s kind of uh, feels sort of like the first bonus feature in mm-hmm. a weird way of like but it is just the cast members talking about what a grueling experience making uh, texas chainsaw was my point is here is I want to read one thing from Joe Bob Briggs is profoundly disturbing. And then I want to just talk about the sequels okay? because I feel like our feelings on Texas Chainsaw will emerge as we talk about the movies that it actually spawned. Yeah. And then it's just going to be like more or less an organic discussion. You down for that? Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to ignore the original. It's just, we don't need to have another discussion by itself to right. start it off. Yeah, exactly. But here, from Joe Bob Briggs is profoundly disturbing, and I apologize, this is a little lengthy, but man, is it some of the best written criticism I've ever read in my life, particularly about a movie, again, that's been beaten to death with with the critical pen, let's say. The most enduring flick of the hippie era was made by 28-year-old Toby Hooper, perhaps the most underappreciated horror director in history, who used $60,000 raised by an Austin politician to create a film that is still shown in almost every country of the world and whose innovations have continued to influence the horror genre for the last 30 years. Its very title has become America's cultural shorthand for perversity, moral decline, and especially the corruption of children. It remains the favorite example of congressmen calling for the censorship of television. Yet the movie's pure intensity, startling technique, and reputation as an outlaw film have brought praise from groups as diverse as Steven Spielberg, the Cannes Film Festival, the inmates of the Pennsylvania State Penitentiary, Martin Scorsese, Travis Bickle watches it in Taxi Driver, William Friedkin, the Museum of Modern Art, Paul McCartney, almost every metal band of the past 20 years, and the Colombo crime family of Brooklyn which gleefully ranked it right up there with Deep Deep Throat as one of their major sources of income during the 70s. The film itself is a strange shifting experience, part grand guignol, part gritty realism. Early audiences were horrified, later audiences laughed, and newcomers to the movie were inevitably stricken with a vaguely uneasy feeling, as though the film might have actually been made by a maniac. That's the best encapsulation yeah. in one paragraph I've ever read of this movie because it's all fucking true. And then he made Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. <laughs> Which, do you want to take this one first? Yes. Um, this was a movie that um, I could not figure out for the longest time. Me too. Um, I couldn't crack it. I was in, I was, t- I remember I was in college and I was actually doing a presentation on Carol Clover um, for uh, for my film theory class. And Author of Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Yes, and um, and the copy I had has 
has um, Leatherface on the cover. But she actually talks quite a bit about Texas Chainsaw 2 in the, the original article in her body himself. And my professor, Dr. Jane Green, was like, have you seen Texas Chainsaw 2? I had not. And said, well, you should, if you're going to present on this, watch at least some scenes about... Right, that... You should at least have some familiarity with with this. And so I watched most of it then, and part of my problem from the beginning was it wasn't one. You know, I... I think that's most people's problems, especially upon its initial release, was that what the fuck did you do to this? Exactly. It very much is... It's such a departure in a lot of ways, but also not. Um, Once you kind of, like, dig deeper... Um, I hated it for years and then I watched it again a few years later. I was like, nope. Like I've watched, I watched like four times, like every couple years I try to be like, I should like this more. I should like this more. Um, and I think it was about two years ago. I think it honestly took me moving to Austin, Texas, where you had texted me like, this is one of the most Texas Texan films ever made, even as much as the original. And I was it like, has everything, man. It's got barbecue. It's got Shiner Bach. It's got big red. It's got Texas Chainsaw Massacres. <laughs> I mean, it's well, and and I mean to be hundred percent honest, like Texas Chainsaw the original is one of the reasons I moved to this town. Like, I, that's not an exaggeration. Like, I'm a, I want to be a horror filmmaker. Where else do you go? But like the birth place of that and the sequel. What I've grown to love about it is in a in a in a time of IPs and mitigating risk at all points, the fact that this was allowed to be made in a sequel to a very successful film blows my mind. Well, it's all about canon, right? Yeah, totally. Which is because they catch Toby Hooper at a strange point in his career to begin with, because this is one of three movies mm-hmm, he made three. for them because he was makes- it the first of the three. Last, I believe. Okay. Yeah, because he makes Life Force the year before, and then... Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars, I believe, is the same year, 1986, as Texas Mm -hmm. Chainsaw 2. But, like, like a lot of Canon's creative decisions, they almost felt like they were, like, two steps behind the zeitgeist itself. You know, because it's the same reason, like, when you go back and revisit all their stuff, like, one of their biggest hits ever was Charles Bronson. They resurrected this actor who wasn't known for being a particularly good actor. He was mostly known for making action films and then the death wish movies, which I mean this Texas chainsaw two closely parallels in terms of like they were both made. Are they both 1974? I believe maybe. Yeah, I think so. Right around the same. Well, either way you have death wish and Texas chainsaw both, early to mid seventies, like genre staples where you don't get anything and nor were they intended to have anything following them up. Yeah. You know, they were just big name, uh, recognizable hits, let's say. And then you get to the eighties to where Canon is now kind of at its boom as being like the disreputable shit factory that it is that we, we've also come to know and love so yeah. well. But they're like, what if we get Bronson and he's like our big in-house star? And it's like, all right, that's like even the people like if you watch Mark Hartley's Electric Boogaloo documentary, like the people who were even there were like at the time were like, 
Okay, that? that's weird. Because like Golan and Globus were known for just being, just kind of throwing shit at the wall and seeing what would stick. Toby Hooper was them throwing shit at the wall and seeing if it was st- if it would stick. Because like, think about Toby Hooper's career after Texas Chainsaw. You have eaten alive a couple years later, which is like trying to do it again. Yeah. It's him trying to do it again, but like combining it with like PCP and a Tennessee Williams play <laughs> like that. The movie is bonkers. It's bananas out of its <laughs> fucking mind. Uh, but I really like it a lot, but it's yeah, it, it's not, it's again, not a nice movie, but I actually think it is closer to Texas chainsaw in te- Texas chainsaw Two in tone than anything else because of how amped up everything is all of that crazy red lighting that goes on the giant fucking like crocodile oh, itself. Man, I love that. The, the lead character the lead. is very similar to, um, the cook, the Jim c- Sidow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like he's just very ghoulish the entire time, but yeah, it's just a very amped up, movie that you know the creator is doing a hefty amount of drugs while they made it <laughs> but then after that you have him he's fired from two fucking movies uh the dark that oh. billy devane alien invasion thing that's i have the kind no- of unwatchable i have the novelization of the original script yeah and it's awesome but the film that it became is garbage well and then he's also fired from uh, venom the <laughs> yeah another odd movie but i I love I love Venom. No, it's incredible. And there was this there's this great filmmaker out there uh, who makes really fun genre movies named John Portanova on Twitter one day he pointed out to me that Venom is kind of like Die Hard but if a cobra was John <laughs> McClane. <laughs> and you have because think of all the people who are in that movie too because Klaus Kinski Oliver is Reed. in it. Oliver Reed uh, Sterling Hayden at his most like Sterling hating this and a fucking Cobra is in that movie. And that's the thing is that it's, it's a home invasion thriller where the Cobra is the, it's bad the good guy. guy. Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah. Kind of the good guy in the movie because the robbers are the bad guy, but like that, but he's fired from both of those. He directs the Salem's lot TV miniseries, which, which he does quite well, which and is a huge hit. Yeah. And then the fun house, his slasher, which I, I don't love. Well, it's got about an hour of nothing. Yeah. Like, it's like Sean Cunningham level we've talked about, just like biding time. Yeah. Um, once the horror gets going, and I love the I love the design. Um, and it was weirdly based on a Dean Koontz novel, but yes. kind of not. Like, like it's different. Like they, they made a lot of changes, and then he released a different version or something. Like, yeah, didn't he a, write a... I thought he wrote the, wrote the book after. He did. Yeah, yeah it was kind of like Christine to where like the movie came before yes. the actual book. But then you have Poltergeist, which is the notorious Toby Hooper. Did he or didn't he direct that movie? Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, like and, jo- and to bring up Joe Bob Briggs again, he says straight up, you know, Toby Hooper directed poltergeist like what are you fucking talking about and i tend to agree because if you even watched poltergeist like yeah it has the spielbergian flourishes that he brought to it as a producer yeah but there's also that mean mean spirit kind of running at the center that hooper brings to all of his stuff because like out of all the guys who emerged let's say from the 70s 
uh, class of like genre filmmakers, the guys who are basically uh, chronicled in shock value. Yeah. The, the Jason Zineman book with De Palma, Carpenter, Carpenter, Craven, Hooper, Cronenberg is another one. Hooper is the one who feels the most un- unwell is probably the best way to put it because with all of his films, whether it be drugs or maybe like a little kind of uh, mental derangement, there's just, there's something about all of his movies that makes me a little queasy, but you know, and, and Poltergeist has that a little bit too. Like the, the, uh, all of the icky like burial ground stuff and the like, stuff with the, the the stepdaughter who's being hit on by like yeah like that would never be in a Spielberg movie no being, yeah there's some strange stuff happening in that movie but then I mean Poltergeist is 82 and then you don't get anything and then you get Life Force in 85 and that's when the canon run begins and the can but where I'm going with this is that Cannon basically was like, well, we can get this guy and people know who he is. Cause he made Texas chainsaw and poltergeist. And like, he has a bunch of other movies that are out there. He's a known quantity. Let's give him a fuckload of money. But one of them has to be a Texas chainsaw movie because he straight up told them like he didn't want to do one. It's, it, it's interesting watching this movie again, I watched it yesterday is you can see the budget just everywhere. I mean, it's like, it's so like the opening kill scene of, which I love of the, the asshole hook horn guys on the way to the game. And I've met those guys in Austin. It's, I like that. We see not just Texas yokels. We see the preps in this first scene. You see like, well, again, this is like the most like Texan movie of all time. Like, the whole thing takes place or the inciting incident is on the way to the UT Oklahoma game. Yep. And it's, it's the fact that everything gets a little crazy around then. And it's this awesome, like action scene. I mean, action horror of these Straight guys. Up action. Yeah. Of, of like a car chase and the gunfire. And then like, you know, a ridiculous, like this meat suit that uh Leatherface is wearing like a fake body in front of like a puppet, like a marionette. And, I think when I f- the movie finally clicked for me a few years ago, and then again watching it again yesterday, is the similarities with the original, and and that there's a sense of humor when you watch one a lot. There's a really fucking sick sense of humor at its core, and especially from the the uh, the hitchhiker um, and the way he is just this joking the whole time and laughing. And it goes from that into Chop Top in in the sequel, Bill Mosley, who's basically who's our hitchhiker, our Ed yeah. Neal stand-in. In I, I always imagine that like they're kind of saying that he was put back together. It's why he has a metal plate in his head. I always imagine that's the hitchhiker. <laughs> that's how I always interpreted it. I may be completely off the mark there, but well, they said he went to Nam. Like he he's got the plate and then it's itching. He's got to go back to the VA the entire Yeah. Time. He keeps saying that, but I'm not sure. Cause he's also wearing the hippie stuff. I like he's like playing a role True. in a way from the beginning. But I think what like the sequel does and captures well, is just a really sick sense of humor. Like it, it's like gallows humor the entire time. It is genuinely funny. Like it's comedic, but that doesn't take away from how disturbing it is. I mean, like it, it no, really, by it, the end, it's really fucked up. 
it does something that I think, again, to bring it back to Hooper, all of his movies do for better or worse is that they hit an almost kind of shrieking hysteria at yeah. certain points. Like the end of the fun house does this really well. Yep. Like, Cause you've ever seen, I got the, the pleasure of seeing the fun house projected and I don't even particularly like that movie that much, but I like looking at it. I think it's a kind of cool looking movie. Oh, I love the look, but the end with the mutant and everything, like getting it, eaten it's, by it's, the gears and yeah, yeah. It, but it's, it's literally deafening when you see it on a big screen, but Texas chainsaw two is deafening when you even watch it in your living room. Like it's, it almost feels like a staring contest at times that Hooper's like challenging you to, and he's looking at you dead in the eye, trying to say like, don't laugh at this. Like, you know, you're not supposed to laugh at this, but it is fucking funny. It's also fucking gross. Like it's disgusting. Like from the moment chop top is literally like peeling little bits of skin and eating them off of the plate on his head. All the Savini like gore effects are very wet. Like LQ getting or whatever his name getting um, like being skinned. Yeah. Her wearing his face. That's a fucked up scene. It's really fucking gross. And then, I mean, just the, the, the splattery end where there's just guts everywhere. And like, Oh, it's, it's a, horrifying movie but he just keeps piling it on and piling it on the other thing that texas chainsaw is that i don't believe the first is at all is horny like there's there's so much sex in this movie i don't know what was going on maybe it was the cocaine because that's the other thing is that you even texted me you're like what was the cocaine line budget (laughs) on texas chainsaw 2 (laughs) and all i could text back to you is i think bottomless (laughs) (laughs) like it's like the Olive Garden of cocaine, <laughs> but <laughs> but like, it, I don't know if doing all the drugs was making Toby that horny. But like, two of the three canon movies are some of the horniest fucking movies of all time because Life Force. Oh baby! Like so many teenage boys sexualities in the 80s were ignited by that naked alien just wandering around Matilda May God God. bless her with the best boobs you've ever seen in your life like literally ever no I'll put that on the money I don't know if anybody's ever looked better naked and she's just like naked yes the whole movie that's what I am but like what the fuck was going on with Toby Hooper? He just wanted, did he just want to bang everything? Because he even has Leatherface humping a super hot Caroline Williams with a chainsaw between his legs like his, it's his dick. He, because she's like, how good are you? How good are you? And he's like, he's got the chainsaw in this. It's, he's, he's fucking it into a giant ice chest, ice bin that has like Minute Maid and like Big Red and then he's like hitting that. It's almost like a convenience store ice chest where if you go in and you just want to buy one can for like two bucks or whatever. Yeah, and it's in the back of the uh, the radio station, which is also a very cool set in general. I love that. All the sets on this are just fucking awesome. It's, it's so horny, but then again, I texted you yesterday. I think my favorite thing about this movie is just the last 40 minutes in that hellscape battleground USA, which is this... It's basically supposed to be this like Texan history, super gung ho America like theme park. It's been shut down and is now where Drayton Sawyer and his clan make all their catering food out of human meats in the basement. It's again, it, it's 
it pulls a lot from the Funhouse. It has this like in terms of the carnivalesque nature of things, but the set of the of like there's these pipes and everything. You just see the money just painted on the walls, and like it takes the design, the amazing production design, honestly, of the original, which is one of the best things. Is like yeah, these, when when the girl I forget her name, but not Sally falls into the room of feathers and bones, like chicken bones, which were real chicken bones, and there was even like two human skeletons yep. like used for it because Bob Burns does all of that amazing production design on the first movie. It looks so good, and I, I love that it was like, what if we did that times a hundred? What if we did that? but with Scarface amounts of cocaine in, and it really, I just love the, it, it felt very similar to me actually to phantasm two, where it was the same kind of thing where you had about 10 years in between movies That's and, a good comparison. and a producer saying, I want the same filmmaker. I kind of want it to be a sequel slash kind of remake at the same time. Um, have fun and do a crazy bigger version. Both have chainsaw fights, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, just the first one, but more. This might be the weed talking from my viewing of, of the movie itself, but like one thought I did have is bringing it back to even, uh, you know, Joe Bob pointing out that Hooper was a hippie, is that this almost feels like a psychedelic perversion of Texas history. To mm. where what would a, uh, if you were to ha- like sit down at a bar, with Toby Hooper or like say any kind of weirdo that you would meet in like Richard Linklater slacker, but they were already possibly on like a tab of acid and like four lone stars deep. And you're like, yeah, tell me about the history of Texas. Like there's a bit of that too, because it introduces one of the, let's say character archetypes that would go on throughout the rest of the series, which is the, the hunter, the Ahab who's going after Leatherface only you got Dennis Hopper to play him and Dennis Hopper in full manic blue velvet mode, wielding a chainsaw and screaming, bring it all down. <laughs> like he's, he's having, cause yeah, it is that era, that mid eighties era. I think it was the same year. He did Blue Velvet, maybe. Like it's after. Yeah. So it's it like 84, 84, 85. Yeah. And he it's 85 because Dune was 84. Dune's 84, yeah. Um, but he um that's the thing I really enjoyed is how again tuned in Dennis Hopper is for this movie. Like he fits this world. He's on its wavelength. He he yeah, right. He like we all keep talking about people who get it, who are game. But it's like, weird. He's but game I think for that's kind of my point is that like the guy who gets it and his game is Dennis Hopper after his fucking acid wilderness period who wanders back. Another former hippie um, who's now wandering back into Hollywood because, I mean, it was a big deal when Dennis Hopper came back and was in Blue Velvet. Like, that was one of the big kind of key attractions to David Lynch's movie is because Hopper had kind of trashed his own career. It's like a Mickey Rourke kind of yeah. resurrection. And then he comes back and he comes back in, in a totally different mutant form than he was during the sixties and seventies. Like yeah. the, the old hippie is gone. Cause the last time you kind of really see that version of it, I guess you see him a little bit of that in river's edge too, because he is yeah. like, but even River's Edge feels like a comment on that to a certain degree. But like Apocalypse Now like, is that like... Well, that's what I was going to say is that's the last time that you actually see like the full-fledged hippie hopper 
on on screen to where like stuff like uh, River's Edge is actually commenting like, oh man, remember those fucking days? Crazy, right? Well, now yeah, I live and, in a shack. And him being known for, you know, you watch you watch like Hearts of Darkness and then how difficult he was to work with on a very difficult film on Apocalypse right. Now. And you see... I don't Cop- think anything about Apocalypse <laughs> yeah. Now is labeled easy. Yeah, nothing was easy. But Coppola is just like, you could tell, having a really hard time. Like, Hopper's asking all his questions. He's Martin totally... Sheen's having a heart attack over here. Hopper doesn't even know what planet he's on. It's It's like... And Hopper's like, yeah, but like, what about... Like, what's my motivation here? And he's just like, just say the fucking lines. Like, it's it's just like <laughs> you can just see that the like, like he's what did I fucking get myself into? But it's it's interesting. Another thing I didn't I didn't realize till it's viewing is that the writer of part two is the writer of Paris, Texas. Right, it's Kit Carson, and who was also friends with Dennis Hopper. They did the, he did the documentary about him. And worked, um, like you just said, worked with Sam Shepard a bunch too. Yeah, and yeah, because he Sam Shepard wrote the story. And Kit Carson is the adaptation which was made into Paris, Texas. But two very weird Texan films um, that have a mythic quality, I would say. Sure. (laughs) You know, and in very different ways. But also, there's some similar wavelength things happening there. Obviously, you have Vim Vendors doing his translation. And then you have the insanity of what Toby Hooper brought. Yeah. I think the big contrast between the two is that Vim Vendors is a European in Texas, and that movie feels like an alien observing yes, yes. The, the desolate landscapes of Texas as Harry Dean Stanton just kind of wanders through them in a dust-covered daze, where Texas Chainsaw 2 is made by a Texas boy. Like, t- there's a reason Toby Hooper even makes a cameo in fucking, in a goofy <laughs> Longhorns cap and like a, an orange jacket holding, a, I think, a Lone Star. It's either yep. a Lone Star or a Shiner Bach. But like, you know, it feels, again, like a guy being like, this is where I came from, and this is the sort of perversity that it left me with. And he's been working through that ever since Texas Chainsaw to one degree or another. It's very, again, like you were saying, like this is very, the most Texas film, Texan film ever made. And living here, like there's just so much that you just get, like the kind of people that show up as ridiculous and garish as the film is. It's like really kind of true to the insanity of this fucking state. This is a weird fucking place to this day. Well, it was <laughs> like I never got slacker 100% or Austin, yep. like until I moved to Austin. And I was like, oh shit, those fucking people are real? Yeah. I thought this and, was just like an exaggeration. And they still are. And not as much, but yeah. Yeah, they're still. They're we'll talk about around. that more when we get to the, the Netflix Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. <laughs> but let's move on to Leatherface Texas Chainsaw uh, Massacre Part 3. Which is the new line entry. This is 1990. 90, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is fine. <laughs> like, I don't dislike it. I think a lot of it's pretty entertaining. And kind of like Texas Chainsaw 2 introduces another uh, archetype that they kind of fuck around with. Really mostly in another sequel. The next sequel, they, they would do this again. But it has Viggo Mortensen as kind of like the passable member of the Sawyer yeah, family. Yeah, he's the hot one. Which is a totally different Sawyer family now because there's a woman in a wheelchair and there's a little girl. That's what's one of the weird things about this series too 
you know, is they don't even give a shit about continuity. No. Like, when we get to Texas Chainsaw 3D, there's the opening gun battle, and there's, like, 15 people in the in the, the house. I'm like, where the fuck were they in the first movie? Like, they don't even, like, and they make them this kind of, like, clan of, like, just, like, well, bootleggers. Well, save that for Texas yeah. Chainsaw 3D. I want to step on that, because that's one of yeah. my major fucking problems with that movie, is that, well, let's just yeah. get into it now. They <laughs> They recap... All of Texas Chainsaw in the opening credits of Texas Chainsaw 3D. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And this is supposed to be a direct sequel because there's multiple direct sequels to yeah. the first movie. Because I remember when uh, Halloween 2018 came out yeah. and people were like, is this the first time anybody's ever done this? Where you make a sequel 10 entry or however many fucking entries deep. And it was like, but it just ignores everything before. And I'm like, no. Fucking Texas Chainsaw has done that like three times at this point. (laughs) But like, what's crazy about Texas Chainsaw 3D is that it recaps the the entirety of Texas Chainsaw during the opening credits only to introduce you to a family in which none of the fucking characters except for Leatherface were even present. And the, 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 the old Leatherface is in the opening scene. Gunnar Hansen's just sitting by the window. And then fucking Chop Top Bill Mosley is there. Is straight and Sawyer. Yeah, and he's there. And you're like, so it's doing fan service while also just introducing this whole new like clan while it's supposed to be a direct sequel to one that it just recapped. You're like, I, I didn't remember anything about that movie because I watched it once in the theaters went, nope. And walked <laughs> like it was like I, I'll never think about that movie again until right now. And now I remembered why because watching it, I was like, that opening ten minutes, I'm like, what the fuck is even going on in this? It's also one of the. It felt similar to Halloween Kills, where it's trying to make it like the townsfolk are the bad people. Yeah. And now, now Michael Myers is still evil in Halloween Kills. This though is like makes Leatherface... It ends with him being an Avenger. He's an Avenger. and it, But a lot of the film is like, you realize this is like these yokel asshole, like people who burned his family to the ground. Again, like kids and people who all lived inside the house and all they cared about. And they also twist the narrative that they were protecting their land, that like these hippies came on their land and it was like, we had to stand our ground and now we're being, we're being hunted for that. It's like, um... No, they came looking for gas, and then you murdered them all and ate them. Right. Um, and Leatherface is not just a misunderstood boy. He's a fucking psychopath That's who wears human truly, skin. truly odd about, and unifies the, the Lionsgate entries, is that they both try to make Leatherface a misunderstood victim to one degree or <laughs> yeah. another because the, the Marion Bastillo uh, entry... Uh, 2017's Leatherface, which is a prequel. It's what the second prequel in yes. the series again. Well, because you have the beginning, which is a prequel to the first remake, yeah. and then you have this one, which is, is technically a prequel to, to the 3D. first. To no, I think this one's supposed to be a prequel to 1974. This is supposed to be a prequel to 3D, is the, it? Because um, the name. It's the the way the name of Leatherface. Uh, so you, you can tell no, you're, you're right. You're right. Is is like one. He's like Bud. One. He's um, Jackson who becomes Thomas Sawyer. Thomas Sawyer. And that's, that's how you know. Remakes. That's how you know what series you're in. Or what yeah. sub series. Which is like. 
Leatherface, what is your real name? Yeah. Show me some ID. <laughs> I want to know where I am right now. The the main problem with does it get back to three? Is I texted you. I was like, it's really short, and the it's movie very watchable. The, it's very watchable. The movie doesn't get started for like forty five minutes. Like the horror, like it really takes its time. It stumbles about in the dark a whole a whole a lot, lot because one of the the things that we should talk about too is that like. You know, the original was notable for being almost entirely set during the day. Yeah. That's what made it terrifying oh, was that Texas and, sun. Yeah, that Texas sun baking down on you and frankly almost killing the cast. Um, and the, the the horrors that kind of awaited these people that were just existing in broad daylight. Well, two, there's some daylight stuff, but a lot of it night. either takes place at night or underground is yeah. the other part. And then this one, like the, it's almost entirely at night, except for that opening gas station sequence, which doesn't make any sense to me still. This is like the fourth or fifth time I've watched this movie. (laughs) This is my first time. And I still don't understand what happens in that scene. I'm like, did they set it up? Does he, like, he obviously knows the clerk and it's a setup. And they fake that he's shot by the guy who runs the gas station. But like, why? (laughs) <laughs> and it's like for the audience, not yeah, for the yeah, characters. It doesn't make any sense within the narrative of the actual film. But again, this one, there's no outside of Leatherface. This is the first one that abandons pretty much everyone else. Like there's no Chop Top. There's no, uh, the no cook's not there. Like we're just, this is a whole new cast of characters. It feels like, I texted this to you, is that it feels like, David Shaw writing a splatterpunk short story, but just setting it in tied to inside of the Texas chainsaw universe. Like if this showed up in one of those, like skip inspector collections, <laughs> yeah, like absolutely. That were released in like the eighties and nineties of just short stories that, you know, put together all the, that whole splatterpunk crew of authors. And there was just like David Shaw wrote a Texas chainsaw kind of bit of fanfic. in one of those, like this would totally fit. And this would kind of feels like what it would be. Yeah. And it's it, like you said, it's really watchable. Like you have Ken Faree, um, as this like survivalist who like runs a camp and he's got a machine gun and like, he can hold his own again. And, you My know, contention but- is that he should have been the main character. Well, how much more interesting would it have been instead of just two, anonymous dildos on a road trip who again befall the horrible Texas cannibals. Like what if it was Ken F- like Forey? That sounds fucking cool. I would like that. Well, Kate Hodge is so fucking hot though. Um, yeah, and but it, there's so many hot women in this series. Like just let Ken Forey, you know what? If it ends with Ken Forey, like punching Leatherface, and, you know, in the face, I'd be into that. It's something again that I do want to raise about this series. I think out of, all the horror franchises, this has the most beautiful women. Like, oh yeah, like just and we'll get to each one, but like each per, literally oh, each movie Mar- from Marilyn Burns on is just like gore. Again, Carolyn Williams, you get to hear Kate Hodge, like gorgeous women. I mean, I would say honestly, Renee Zellweger is really beautiful in four. She's it's probably the least of the series, but then you get into the remakes, you're like, wow. I mean, well, just... for Renee Zellweger and four is one of the ultimate examples of here's this incredibly attractive person. How do we try and make them ugly? Put some nerd glasses on them. And yeah. it just made me want to bang her more. Cause I have a thing for glasses. She, it's a, she's all that. Yeah, you know, totally men, mentality, but three, like I, it was one of those things where the, the pacing, you could feel the pacing weird. It feels like there's scenes cut out. Um, the production design also kind of sucks. Like you get to the house and it looks like they rented a house and like had about 
an hour to just put some accoutrements in compared to like the, the original. It has that kind of anonymous new line feel yeah. that they were church, like some of the stuff they were pumping out throughout the nineties to where like, unless it came from like one of their major auteurs, like say John Carpenter making in the mouth of madness for new line in like yeah. 95, I think like that felt distinct, yeah. you know, or like any of the Freddie movies where they would actually pour money into those and like really bring those kind of alive. You get Stephen like, Hopkins to yeah, come hire in guys like and... Rennie Harlan and shit. Like that's where they spent the money. This was just like, Oh shit, we can get the keys to the Texas chainsaw kingdom. Let's give it a spin. But it feels like they're giving it a spin on like they're balling on a budget here. Let's say yes, very much. And it's, it feels again, like kind of like a, like part, like a 2.5 or something. It's like a, a middle, yeah, a middle it's perfectly movie. Serviceable. It, you know, it that was kind of Jeff Burr, the director's bread and butter, though, because he made a couple Puppet Master... Like, this was what he did. He made a couple Puppet Master movies. The Scarecrow one. Yeah, he Night, made... Night of the Scarecrow. Night of the Scarecrow. He made this. Oh, Pumpkinhead 2, Blood oh, Wings. Blood Wings, yeah. Yeah. And then, because he also made... Yeah, you're right, Night of the Scarecrow. And then... From a whisper to a scream, too. Which oh, is I like a that good one. one. But like, yeah, he. This is what he did. He made these sort of anonymous journeyman like franchise entries that were fine. Yeah, like, they're watchable. You know, actually, for the Puppet Master series, is probably head and shoulders above everybody's. But like Dave Dakota's yeah, early because he, he, he did four, right? Four and five. I like four and five a lot. I forget the name of that villain, but the 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 bigger puppet the kind of like demon looking thing right i like i like that whole edition. i don't i don't remember i own them all yeah and i watched them all but like they run together in my head because there's like 20 of them at this point i've only seen one through like five I like think. the main like, the main thrust the, yeah because i i'd always heard that three was good I, I do love the world war ii stuff and three it's fucking fun as hell yeah and i think four and five is like it had a little more of a budget, but, but anyway, um, should we move on to part four return of the Texas chainsaw massacre? Let's do it. The reviled return of the Texas chainsaw massacre, which I have fun with, you know, I still don't think this is particularly good, but like there's shit in it, particularly, uh, especially McConaughey. Yeah. In it. Like he's really digging into Vilmer and making him kind of insane. Uh, and, beefing up he's almost like the texas chainsaw 2 of vigo mortensen's because like he takes the yeah. the handsome stranger and just like the moment vilmer shows up you're like oh this guy's fucked up but he's like really good looking he yeah he's um he's got i love the leg he's got this um it's like a robot leg it's a, it's a brace that's robotic so he has remote controls that he needs to keep replacing the batteries and it's it, he it, just keeps like TV remotes in like his pocket and stuff. Yeah, it's he's, really bizarre. There's a scene where he's got four. He keeps pulling out a remote yeah. in a clown car. Like, oh shit! Oh shit! And he keeps like pulling more and more out. I I had not seen four since I think middle school. So we're talking like '98, probably the last time I saw this movie. And I watched it this weekend or end of last week, and I really enjoyed myself again. Like you know, going back and you know, I knew McConaughey had already kind of been on the scene at that point but now i mean like we have <laughs> decades now of of the McCon McConaissance. um 
and he's like he's having a, he's having a blast. I think something that you and I were texting about was that some of the better moments in the Texas Chainsaw series are not about Leatherface. Um, it's when we don't try to make it about Leatherface, like this is your central villain. It's the family, right? Like, because Leatherface is always like in my mind the the kind of like rabid dog of the family, where it's like they're the ones talking. They're just as scary. They're just as willing to kill you. But like when it comes to like you running away, that's the guy that's going to fucking chase you, you know? Right. And he's the one, he's kind of quiet, but he'll, he'll get you. And this one Leatherface is barely kills anyone. It feels like, um, and it does have the, one of my favorite chases in the series where I felt it took the chase from the original with Marilyn Burns, like where she kind of goes in the house and jumps out the window. You have well, yeah, it, it, and she does the same stunt, but she grabs that fucking cable. She, it's awesome. Well, she, she, yeah, she comes out the window. She's on the roof, and you have Leatherface up on the roof with her. She goes up onto, I think it's the um, the TV antenna that bends forward. The stunt woman jumps like two stories high onto the cable. Leatherface cuts that and she swings and falls into a fucking like glass greenhouse. Yeah. It's like, this is a cool fucking sequence. And I also really like the, um, I think he's like French or Eastern European. <laughs> this businessman who comes by in a, in a, a fucking limo and you it's first the you, Illuminati. He's, yeah. It's like, he's like running this and he's like a Clive Barker character. Cause he opens his shirt and he has this Barker esque like skin tattoo. Like, like it's been carved and these three rings. He's like a Cenobite, like, yeah. or like a, like a, like a, like a night breed character. Under it's his, Alex Jones. He, <laughs> that's, that's actually Alex Jones. No way. No, I'm just talking. <laughs> well, I mean, Jesus it wouldn't. Christ. But I mean, Austin, you know, <laughs> That's, that, uh, that was the joke. Martin. Yeah, but uh, but he's like, and he licks her a lot. And he's like, oh, he's like, their job is to make you feel fear, and they're trying to create this whole thing of like, he, they're paying Vilmer and his family to it's like their thorn cult. It's it's yeah, the Texas Chainsaw yeah. thorn cult. Yeah, and like, I was like, I was kind of about it, but that's then, fucking awesome because you're like, so, what is going on in this? I love anything. Again, we talked about this when we talked to Empty Man. If you bring a secret society in, like I'm fucking in. Well, like, that's cool. As to fuck. to your point too, it's the mo- it brings it back to Austin. It brings it back to where this place originally or the the franchise originally came from. Is that the fact that Kim Hankel at the end is like, and what if, hey. Hear me out, guys. What if the Sawyers, they were in with the Illuminati and like they were just killing people for it? And the whole time, the Illuminati, they're behind all the things in the planet. Like, don't even get me started, boy. Give me another beer. (laughs) Like, we used to have this woman who came into Vulcan all the time who did nothing but rent. Because we had an Alex Jones section just because he was you know, a local crank who made yeah. these documentaries. And we had all the early like bootleg documentaries that he had put out and stuff. And we had this one woman, we we called her unity. That was her, her because in the, the computer we could give people nicknames and pull it up right away. And we called her unity. And it was like, you, you didn't engage unity in anything political. Just don't do it. Because she spent like literally 30 minutes on the middle of like a Tuesday telling me how Barack Obama was the devil 
and was going to drone strike Walmart. And I was like, <laughs> interesting. Do yes. tell. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, now please rent me my three Alex Jones documentaries <laughs> all again. So my point being... Kim Hankel, including Illuminati conspiracy theories, might be the most Austin thing ever. It's like his version of like Madonna's pap smear from fucking Slacker. You know, <laughs> there's a there's the end is this is really weird too because you see him riffing on the original on part one. Yeah, where instead of <laughs> instead of the big red black big black mamba. Um, or Black Bertha, um, the truck coming to right. kind of start the saving of the day. It's a fucking uh, crop dusting plane. That, oh, that's right. It that comes down and slices open Vilmer, and Vilmer has blue blood for some reason. Illuminati. Illuminati shit. It's like yeah. he's not even human. Deep state Vilmer. It's, it's so bonkers, but... <laughs> That crop duster was was a, a mechanism of the deep state. I mean, I wouldn't put it past this film. And I think that's what's kind of cool about this series is that when it's at its, I'd say, best sometimes. Is when it's incoherent. Is when it's just insane. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually, I, ha I had an argument with a friend one time about, about Phantasm. And he hated part two because it was too coherent. And he goes, kind of the, the thing that's great about Phantasm that is, the, sense, is the mess of part one. And it just, it makes no logical sense. Yeah. Not because he had a deep thought. It's because, no, they just didn't know what they were doing. Right. Like, it's just, I love that movie, but it's just not well put together. Because even Coscarelli will cop to it to where he's like, yeah, like there is some thematic stuff about a boy coming of age and realizing his bond to his brother and blah, blah, blah. But also like, I was just like winging it, man. Yeah, <laughs> shot for weekends over three fucking years or whatever. So I do want to point out one thing before we move on to the Michael Bay produced remakes um, in that this has the last... Texas Chainsaw title card basically because these, these movies yeah. the early bits of the franchise from from Texas Chainsaw on were known for the opening title cards and John Larroquette's narration which he this will be with the new one with Netflix it'll be the fourth time that he comes back right because you got him in Texas Chainsaw Texas Chainsaw, the the remake, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, they actually put the narration at the end, which I thought yeah. was an interesting That riff. was cool. And then he returns kind of in a, a cheeky fashion in the Netflix entry that I, I thought was kind of cute. But here, they were also known for having the title cards. And the title cards are sort of hilarious. They, they almost, for four of these movies cue you into what kind of tone we're yeah. going to be working with. The music comes in and well, the first one's so iconically grim, you know, it's all the more tragic that they were young and like it, it's, it really is signaling like what this movie's about. It's about Vietnam paranoia. It's about hippies realizing that death is all around them and can be found in the daylight in the middle of a, a ramshackle house in the middle of nowhere. When it's your time and your number is called, there's nothing you can do about it. That's what the first movie is literally about. And then two has this sprawling, jokey thing about like, Oh yeah, and Sally like escaped from it, and then she slipped into catatonia. She was babbling about no one believed her. Cannibals. Well, there was like a month long search. We didn't find any. Like there was no trace of the this family that she she brought up. You know, years went by, and there were several several incidents. 
But now, like, basically the buzz is back, you know, and it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then three has a very, it returns it to that grim, portentous tone where it even kills Sally Hardesty off in the opening title card. It's like she was in like a nursing home and then died. But four, the the return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think signals how much of this is kind of a a Kim Henkel fuck you to Toby Hooper a little bit. Because one of my favorite lines in the title card is that it's all about like, ah, April, August 18th, 1973, News of a, a bizarre chainsaw-wielding family, blah, 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 blah. Then, over the next several years, at least two minor, yet apparently related incidents were reported. He's talking about the actual movies themselves that came before that he wasn't allowed to be involved in. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, he's kind of... that. <laughs> yeah, he's giving you a middle finger and being like, this is my movie now. I always found that kind of cutesy and fun. Yeah. You know, but let's get to Michael Bay and Platinum Dunes and the hottest woman possibly who's ever lived, Jessica Biel, in a wet t-shirt contest. This movie, fucking, it's good. It fucking rules, dude. I was actually with I had drinks with my buddy earlier, and we were talking about Michael Bay, and we're, I'm really excited for Ambulance. Um, but we we're I was saying that here's this guy who, you know, as, as he's an auteur, you know, for good or ill, but. As a producer, too. I mean, like, his Platinum Dunes horror films, like this, Amityville Horror, which I'd forgotten. That's why Brent Fremden reminded me. I love the fucking Friday the 13th one. Did uh, they do the Nightmare on Elm Street one, They did. Too? That's the bad one. Um, that movie fucking sucks. Um, it's bad. It's real bad. Well, about and Friday awesome. the 13th, that one's kind of fucking awesome. And same director, Marcus Nispel. Yeah, and I was, that's, that's one. That, I love that one a lot. Um, I love the whole design. To everything and the money and, and, and you know the production design and the and the Michael Bay saturated colors um, and again sexy people across the board and you know the way he he except knew, for Eric Balfour just an ugly motherfucker like ew but just he looks like the ugliest version of Ty West. <laughs> <laughs> what sucks is like I feel like. This this podcast could be heard by him at some point, probably. I hope I, I hope you hear it, Ty West. Yeah, I'll fight you. Uh, <laughs> X looks like shit. Fuck, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of fucking innkeeper sucks. Yeah, speaking, of, speaking of like a Texas Chainsaw like ripoff, you know. Um, and yeah, take your A twenty four fucking Rob Zombie movie and shove it up your own ass. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, we should cut all of this. Uh, <laughs> but. I saw this at the cheap theater because I didn't want to go because I really liked I loved the original. Came out as a freshman in college, and I was like, eh, I'm not gonna go. I was a sophomore, sorry. I followed my sophomore year, 2003, and I'm like, I'm not gonna go. And then finally, I was I was home in Indiana. My friends like, it's two dollars, and I fucking loved it. I, it's so fucked up. It's so gory. It looks great. It's so well directed. This Just is oh four, right? It's oh three. Oh three. Yeah. So I'm working in the movie theater as a projectionist at this time because I remember watching it through the viewfinder like a ton, and just like I would catch scenes of it because I really, really liked it. Um, I th- I think my theory on this is that it introduces, and this is very much Michael Bay being Michael Bay. But like it's the the subtext is text now. This is all about uh, the first one's more 
subtle about it, if we can use that term, then the beginning, oh, the beginning, the beginning goes, oh, yeah. like, goes so hard with the, oh, yeah, if you didn't get the point of 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, let us spell it out in crayon for you. <laughs> On their way to Vietnam. <laughs> Which I would honestly say is a feature and not a bug, but we'll get there in a second. But this one is like, it, it literally con- confronts these hippies and these idealistic young people with death by having the hitchhiker, instead of making him a maniac like Ed Neal's version was, it's their previous victim. She has escaped. It's essentially the the Jessica Beale before she even knows that this is her fate. Yeah. And it's it's introducing that idea of like this violence is cyclical. This family's always going to continue killing. You just stumbled into the wrong place at the wrong time. Like the first, the, the very original film. Uh, but I like the twist that she kills herself and then it becomes about what do we do? How do we handle this situation? What are our moral obligations to this girl afterwards? Because again, it's bringing up that idea of like, what am I obligated as a, a, a human citizen? Let's say a, a, a citizen of the human race. What do I have to do when confronted with the worst possible uh, atrocities around me? And it, it the same way that like it would ask, you know, the, the people or the youth of, of the nation uh, during the same time the Texas Chainsaw was being made of like, what if you were called up to war? What would you do? Would you just blindly go or would you actually question the decision to go face death and destruction just because you were told to that it's your obligation? So I like that idea. And then it introduces the real powerhouse of these two movies, which is Arlie Ermey. He, to your point, I think this is why these two are some of the best Texas Chainsaws is because it gives you a second villain yes. who's probably better than Leatherface. Like, this is the Arlie Ermey show, and he is fucking eating this shit up. Yep, he's um he's the highlight of both these movies. And also, um, Andrew Brzezinski as um, Leatherface is so physically imposing. I think yeah, of him from in the, the program. The, I was, no, him in the program where he's that girl and his arms are like John Cena size. He's like, a, he's a yeah. monster. Like he's a fucking monstrous man. He's like Reacher, you know, like that size yeah. or bigger. But Arlie Ermey, Vanilla Gorilla. <laughs> What he what he brings to this movie too is he's really scary. I think oh he's both. great. In this. He's really scary because his for me the the secret to the scariness and the terror of Texas Chainsaw when it's at its best is that moment when the normal becomes the abnormal. They all hang at this moment. So you think about the original. You think of the the scene with the um the hitchhiker, the Ed Neal. It's, I think it's a scary scene in the movie because it's the slow that when it becomes, oh, we're in trouble. Like, it's the realization that this thing that we think we're doing a good deed is actually we, we invited hell into our van. Very much. And it's, it's the when you're dealing with someone who's not reasonable, who's not sane, right? And you realize you're in trouble. That's when it's, that's really scary. You can't rationalize with evil. Right. And I feel that Arlie Ermey is that where... The, the scenes are really well written with him. I think especially in, in the in the 
2003 remake. Well, it's his bad lieutenant. Like, if you took his scenes from this and then his scenes from the beginning and spliced them, I'm surprised nobody's ever actually done this and spliced them into, like, you would almost get a full narrative feature that is just Arlie Ermey's, like, redneck bad lieutenant, and it would be awesome. Well, he's, it's it's funny because I feel like, um, you know, Rob Zombie has very much, obviously, is obsessed with Texas Chainsaw. And House of Thousand Corpses is Texas Chainsaw through and through. It's his sure. version of that. And it's like the Devil's Rejects is the Sawyer family. I mean, that's it's Captain Spaulding. The whole thing is very much... Well, hold on to this for a second. I want to bring this up particularly when we get to the, the last entry before uh, the Fide Alvarez. Okay, movie. cool. Yeah. Um, but I think that in... In a similar way, like you, like you had the bad lieutenant, you know, comparison you said, but there's that moment in this one where you still think he's the sheriff, like you don't yet know that he's he's bad, and he's at the Is van. It where he goes, Mom, would you like to get the fuck out of my way and let me do my yeah, job? Yeah, because it starts out him. It starts <laughs> so out he's good. he's just rude. He's yeah. a rude cop, and it's the scene. It's the moment where he grabs the gun and he puts it in his ankle holster. It's his fucking gun. That's so awesome. And it's this moment, and the kids are so stupid, they don't realize. And it's, but it's, it's from that is the progression of they still think he's a cop for a long time. Yeah, for a huge stretch for, of the first and, movie. And so, and, and in, in the beginning as well, even though they see him kill people in front of them, it's the slow descent well, into th- him bringing them into madness. Well, and I think I think the difference between the first remake and the beginning is the fact that like we know from the the outset of the beginning that he's not a cop. Yeah, we're clued into that to yes. where like it actually takes us a minute, like you said, with the ankle holster to be like you know so- when he shows up that he's probably gonna be bad. Yeah, but like when he is like. You're like, oh, I didn't know the extent of it. Like when he makes that dude fucking swallow that gun, that that is straight up Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, that's him just verbally assaulting this dude and being like, "Do it, fucking." <laughs> well, he tells her he tells him to sit where she was sitting. Yeah, where the gore is, oh. and he's like, he's like, no, that's not where she was sitting. And it's just all these little. You hear that wet splash? Yeah, and, just, and these little moments of him just dehumanizing them. You know, and he's really, he, again, he's freaky in that way. And this film also captures um, a thing that makes the first one really scary is that when you're in this world, there's nowhere to go. Right. Everyone's involved. Every gas station, every fucking RV, everything, wherever you go. It's like the Sawyer family just owns everything here. Yeah. But there's nothing else there, so it makes sense. But yeah, yeah, every gas you go to the barbecue restaurant, and it's just that creepy old lady with the glasses. When she escapes at the one point, she goes in that trailer, and they're just like, "Oh no, he's just playing with you." And you're like, "Oh no, he's a nice boy. He's a nice boy. Shame about his face, skin disease." No, I guess we could use this to bring it up. Um, is the various backstories of Leatherface. <laughs> because to, to your point, it, it goes in line with the, the unknowability and, and inability to reason with evil or death. Like, Leatherface is very much like the precursor to Michael Myers. Like, he's just unknowable evil that exists in this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. You don't know why he's there. You don't know any backstory. Like, it gives you some visual cues and hints, like with the barbecue. and Yeah. But you have to really do the digging yourself. Where, like, 
two makes him this manic pervert who's kind of like just coming of sexual age in a weird way, weird way because he meets Caroline Williams and they have like this kind of, I don't want to say meet cute, but sort of meet cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, and she sees, she sees the innocence in him and, and right. thinks that's her way out. And that, and you know, three, you can help me. You can help me. Three loses that entirely because like three leather faces, just your drunk uncle. I don't even think that they fucking give him. He's just like you said, the dog of the family. Like there, there's no backstory to him. Although I do like the comedic, uh, sequence in, in Texas Chainsaw three, where, <laughs> He makes him grab the... Well, well, he's doing the speak and spell thing, and clown is spelled food to him. It's just... No, it was was supposed to be sleepy. It was a person sleeping, and it kept being like... He kept F-O-O-D. It's like, yes. (laughs) I mean, that shit's funny. It's like American Psycho where he writes bone. Like he's writing bone in the uh, crossword puzzle. Yeah. (laughs) Four is weird because four really plays up the transvestite stuff, the, like the um, Buffalo bill side of Ed Gein, again, yeah. the, the basis for, for, um, Norman many, Bates, many Buffalo bill and screen. Yeah. And, uh, and leather and a couple others too. But with, uh, the remakes, it's almost like they give him a skin disease. He's deformed. Like, and then the beginning is a pure, like this is how Le- Leatherface was basically an abandoned, deformed baby that the Sawyers found in like a dumpster. Yep. Behind a meat packing plant, who then goes to work at the same meat packing plant until it's closed and kills the foreman the, the minute he's supposed to be fired. <laughs> well, I think I got the vibe the foreman's his dad. That he was like yeah, fucking. He's it fucking, feels that there's some incestuous shit going. It on. It feels like an EC Comics, right? Like a, it, it's, it's a lot really of, ghoulish. A lot of like tech, a lot of like EC Comics tales from the crypt stuff was like people in factories being mistreated. I'm like it felt like the beginning of an EC comic right. setup, and very pulpy. Um, but I, I very like you know to Michael Myers. I I think of um, I. We're just gonna say what everyone's always said. I mean, fuck, fuck prequels and explaining away a, a villain yeah. who's just scary. What, well, it's but it's when he was the shape, like he was the shape in Halloween. He wasn't Michael Myers. Yes, yeah. yeah. He was, he, but that's what Leatherface was to me. Is that Leatherface is the Texan shape, like in the original film, who's then explained, but he's explained several different ways throughout this movies. Like it, like Texas Chainsaw the. If you took TCM, you could almost do, if you wanted to write like a really clickbaity uh, post, anyone who's listening to this, you can just steal this idea. Anybody from screen, anybody from screen rant, you want to, want to, you want jot this this down? You're going to have some good content. (laughs) You want to get paid $18 for a screen rant article? Call it the Texas Chainsaw Metaverse, because to me, these are almost like all existing in different like meta takes or on like different timelines to where like on this timeline, Leatherface is unknowable evil on this timeline. He's just a horny misunderstood boy on this timeline. He's a disfigured weirdo who was like stolen and raised to be like a cannibal chainsaw wielding maniac on this timeline. He lived with his grandma in an abandoned orphanage until he was like, 70 which is one of the the (laughs) logic errors in the new movie that i want to address and then it becomes like an avenging angel well in leatherface which is another timeline the the mario bastillo movie he was an escaped mental patient who gets shot in the face and that's his 
his uh, explanation for his disfigurement there. It's just like the Texas Chainsaw Metaverse is just out there, and it depends what dimension are you currently existing in. That's what Leatherface comes for you. And I don't want any of that. Like, I don't... What's interesting is that you think about Michael Myers, and that made me kind of think of something I was mulling over watching the series is when we talk about slasher films, you know, people talk about, well, the original slasher is like, you know, uh, psycho is kind of what started, you know, certain, yeah. certain aspects. And, um, and then you have like peeping Tom brings some things into and, or um, deranged, uh, the Canadian movie that, uh, Anya Stanley wrote about it, which is also about Ed Gein. Yeah. yeah. Which is also directly about Ed Gein. But, What's interesting is that I have never thought of the majority of the Texas Chainsaw films as slashers. And because for one reason is I feel like Texas Chainsaw and the, the kind of movies that it spawned, the, the, the copiers, the people who copied it, are very different than slashers. I think of films like Frontiers. Um, That's or, what I, I wanted to get into when talking about Leatherface. So let's just do this now. Okay, so I'll, I'll finish my point. We'll, we'll, I want to hear yeah. your take on this too. Um, is that the the Texas Chainsaw setup of you took a wrong turn, um, and a lot of it is spent, you know you're in trouble, you know you're in danger, and you're tied to a chair, and you're finding ways to escape, you're being, you're, you're being tortured, you're seeing your friends die in front of you. That is not similar to many slashers. Like, most slashers are... You know, you're in a place, most of the characters are unaware they're in danger for a, a good period of time. Um, the killer is unknown or it's a mystery. And this is, again, setting up films like Hills Have Eyes, the original, the sequel, the remakes, the remake sequels. Um, again, the the new French extremity across the fucking board. I mean, like, high tension pulls from slashers, but it pulls much more from Texas Chainsaw in a, right. in a lot of ways. Um, Frontiers, again, Full on Texas straight up Chainsaw. Just French, Texas Chainsaw. You ever see Calvair? Yes. Yeah. That's uh, well, another one. Well, and for me, Storm Warning from sure. from Australia is a full on Australian. It's the it's the same movie. Well, even in the seventies with with uh, Charles and Albert Band and and Tourist Trap. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Like there are many mutations of this, and this is what I want you have already now brought up what I wanted to talk about with 2007's Leatherface is that that and the beginning were the two movies that when we did this rewatch, I came around on the most, the beginning, the hardest, like I yeah. really like the beginning now, but me, Leatherface me I like, but it was an, an interesting reminder of what you were just describing of like the way that this movie's influence and Hooper's influence kind of, not just infected the genre, but kind of transmutated over time mm. and other people took it and used it to express their own ideas. Leatherface still feels like a new French extremity movie from the guys who made Inside or Xavier Gens or Alexander Aja, any of those guys. Like that's where they came from. Now, I think the difference between Leatherface and those films is that those films, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, were using genre to make political statements about the state of France at yeah. the time. And they they were fueled by the same kind of paranoia and rage that drove a young hippie to make, 
you know, a $60,000 movie that went on to change the face of horror forever. Like that kind of outsider weirdo drive can be felt in the original new French extremity stuff where like Leatherface is just taking that hyper gory in your face Euro edgelord aesthetic and just applying it to a uh, Texas Chainsaw prequel, which lessens its power somewhat, but like this movie was notoriously recut by the producers. I've even been told by somebody who worked on the film that there's a totally different cut of it on a flash drive somewhere that was then re-edited at the the uh, demand of the producers because it would just Mario Bastillo just didn't give them the movie that they wanted. And they were like, fuck, we need to still give them a Texas chainsaw movie. But like, no matter how hard you recut this, this is a new French extremity movie to its fucking core. You just can't yeah. strip it of its, its raw intensity and power. And like, does it all work? No, but the stuff that does fucking work in it is awesome. Like when that, that diner sequence, yeah. when they pop off like natural born killer style and he executes that girl and, and the, the blood, fucking blood. Yeah. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. Like that is just a, a great example of what made those movies almost like car crashes to where like it was, it was really rubbing your face and in, in awfulness, but you couldn't look away because they were so stylistically like assured. Well, I think a point that you made when we were texting about this film was that it pulls a lot from Halloween though too. Like you, right. you, you bring in the escape. It is just the narrative of Halloween just in the back, like Texas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Texas slash Bulgaria, you know, and, and, <laughs> the the backwoods sense of that but yeah of just like these people who escape and um and you explain uh how J i guess jed is the version of leatherface in this and and the whole time you're like all right it's this misdirect where it's it's this it's not the big chonky guy yeah and i'm like it's not him it's definitely the lead and what the cool thing though is i really liked that actor sam strike because he was played he was cast as roland in the Amazon yeah. Prime, uh, where they shot the pilot, um, and he was the young Roland for Wizard and Glass for a Dark Tower. And he's also in Mind Hunters. Like he's amazing as that one serial killer who wants the soda. And it's right. that really creepy scene. So I've he's one of the best parts of this movie. And he's really good in this. He's really good in this. Um, this movie's also really gory. Again, like a like anything by those filmmakers. Also one of the few Texas chainsaws to have sex in it too, to where when they fuck on top of that fucking decaying suicide victims, like body, Ugh. but also straight out of something you would have seen in France in like the mid two thousands. It, like, it reminded me of, um, I don't like this film from them, but among the living, which I saw at yeah. South by, um, but that killer is, did is you that, see their latest one? The, the underwater haunted house uh, movie deep house. I have not, I haven't either. I've heard it's, it's style like a lot of their stuff outside of inside stylish, but not great. Well, it, I met a Bastille. He's like one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. It was my first year at South by, and I remember like walking up and I was like, Hey, is that when livid played, it was no, it was when on oh, the living played. Okay. And it didn't have a title or I had a different title. Um, it livid played a couple, a couple years earlier and it's just finally coming out on shutter. Yeah. Like this, like next month they're, and they're really going to propose doing a whole French new extremity oh. episode next season. Well, I'm, I'm in, um, don't, you don't have to convince me. I'll, I'll, talk, <laughs> about, I'll, talk, about, I'll talk about martyrs for three fucking hours. Um, but I, 
walked up to him and said, hey, man, I really like inside. And he's just this wonderfully sweet French man. He's like, you did? I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you want a ticket to my movie tonight? And I'm like, yep. And he gives me a ticket for a month, like one of the, the you get to go right in front of the sure. line at South by. Um, but that's, there's some stuff in that, like where the scene where he shoves his foot in that girl's mouth oh. and it's like, yeah. Ugh. And it, it reminds me of some of the stuff in Leatherface of the, 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 the body sexy stuff that, and she's all covered in burns too. Like she's yeah. in a fire. So like her whole chest is burned, her breasts and a part of her face. And again, like she's getting like, they're having sex like from behind and she's licking the dead man's face, like kissing him. And it's like, Oh God. Well, not to intellectualize this too much, but I mean, that was also like one of those key, those key signifiers of the new French extremity is so much about it was about identity and like figuring out regardless of whether or not it meant you were a murderer in the end, it was all about discovering like what your, your true personhood was and embracing that idea of like who you were and like Leatherface does that like it's very much about a a kid who who self-actualizes in a weird way or is at least pushed along by this movie's white or not white but like ahab uh steven dorf who's terrible he's so bad at this dude he's just like yeah and then you got finn jones Doing the worst Texan oh, yeah. accent. He's always terrible. It's bad. Yeah, he's never good. He in ruined anything. Iron Fist and he ruined this. <laughs> <laughs> you ruin everything, Finn Jones. Everything you touch you turns to shit. <laughs> I mean, You're King Midas in reverse. <laughs> he fucking sucks. But um, no, this movie ends on a, a strangely tragic note because if you think about it, I guess spoilers if you haven't seen 2017's Leatherface, but it ends with, it has a whole running theme of like, these lunatics escape from this asylum. Sam Strike's character, they're hinting at the entire time, like they have this nurse with them who's the, they're, they're, cap, they're captive. And actually Sam Strike is because there's two who are even crazier yeah. than he is, he and Jed. And he's protecting her and, and, he's, he's, pr- protecting and he's protecting her. Uh, Bud or whatever. And Bud yeah. is like his, um, almost like his little brother type. Yeah. But like it ends with, he gets disfigured, goes under the the power, falls under the power of his crazy mother, who's Lily Taylor, which is kind of fucking awesome. Yeah. And then... She has fun in this. Saws off his love's head, and then the final scene is him in the basement constructing his first mask made out of skin that you know part of her face is on, and it's almost like he covers up the disfigurement with the only person who ever showed him like real love in the world. And suddenly Leatherface becomes a vaguely tragic figure in a way. Yeah. And that's like, so new, new French extremity, like through and through, like that's what, I mean, high tension is literally (laughs) a movie about a, a girl who's driven insane by love and murders everybody around the girl that she wants to be in love with because like she doesn't want her to be with anybody else. And it becomes like a tragic uh, movie about identity and everything, but they do that here in Leatherface and that's kind of cool. The thing again, that we we were talking about over text that I found interesting were the differences between the films shot in Texas and those not shot in Texas. Sure. Because you have different levels of that. You have like, Full on Texan, we have one, two, and the next generation, which are clearly shot. They're very, and not just shot here, but Texan. They feel Texan. Yes. 
Then you have the European films, which are this one is shot in Bulgaria, as is the new one, I believe, are yes. both are both shot there. Um, and then I think the rest are probably California or New Mexico. I don't think they were actually shot in Texas. Right. Um, and so the difference between the authenticity of the Texan experience and then kind of it's interesting you talked earlier about like Vim Vendors doing Paris, Texas. Leatherface, not shot in Texas, but also is a European's view of the Amer- of American violence too, and of the of of our culture. Well, I think that's part of what makes Leatherface so interesting. Leatherface is made by two Frenchmen. It, it's an outsider's view again, in the same way that, frankly, I mean, Toby Hooper was an outsider. So, like, yeah. and it was his strange view of the world. So, in one way, it almost feels full circle. Yeah, absolutely. You want to get to the new one? Let's do it. All right. We're back and talking about 2022's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mind you. Just Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like Fast and Furious. You just take, yeah. <laughs> just take just out take the take one buzz. word out, and you know what? You've got yourself a new movie. Martin, this movie is very controversial already online. Many people believe that it sucks. What say you? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I thought it was so fucking good. So you texted me. You saw it before me, and you said... Well, it's not boring, that's for sure, which is, <laughs> which is always a good like signifier of I might like this. Okay, let's get let's get this out of the way. You said this and you, you're right. It's Cinestates. It's it's Cinestates. It's the Cinestates Texas Chainsaw. It's politically messy. It's it's stuff I to put it mild. I, yeah, I'm I'm being nice. That I, things I honestly just don't agree with politically. Um it I don't know if the movie agrees with it. I don't. Here's my right. thing. I don't think the movie has a political stance. I think, again, it's going back to Fede Alvarez's kind of edgelord thing yeah. of like, I'm fucking with you the whole time, elbowing you in the ribs a little bit. In the same way that the Cinestate stuff, when that studio existed, was doing it, like the S. Craig Zoller stuff was, and, and uh, Dallas Saunier's kind of input like having known and worked for the guy like that was a big thing that he got off on was just like wouldn't it be funny if we threw this in because they they knew it would piss people off you know that's what alvarez is to me he has the same sensibility of like i'm gonna toss shit in here that i know is gonna stir the pot and piss people off a little bit i don't know if that counts as a fucking political stance right right no yeah but it's but i understand why people are you know are uh, so it's the same way how like and this will be the last time that I actually bring up Dallas because I don't like talking about him or Cinestate is that it's the same way in that Cinestate could own the very left leaning public like Fangoria revival while also producing uh S Craig Zoller movies or like a fucking puppet master movie where they they're Nazis and kill Jewish people yeah or like uh, starting rebeller, all of it was just to start shit. Like, I don't think that that means you actually believe it because you can have left leaning, a very inclusive Fangoria. And then also 
as Craig Zoller's very politically dubious uh, trollings on the same under the same roof, let's say, and that Sonia and Sinestate's politics are whatever they think would sell. It's why he's making movies with the fucking Daily Wire right now. <laughs> is that like, you know, I don't, ben, I don't ben think Shapiro's a big piece of shit. Knowing. Knowing Dallas and having spent time with them, I don't think Dallas is alt-right or whatever. I just think he's whatever is going to enable him to keep doing the shit that he wants to do, which might actually be a greater sense of evil, which is is being apolitical and yeah. amoral to where it's Not just, having a philosophy. Yeah, have, yeah. being so malleable uh, with your own values that it doesn't matter. As long as it's good for business, you'll kind of change your tone. That might even be more dangerous than not having an actual genuine stance itself. A true mercenary perspective. Exactly. Um, to get into some of the details, though, I think, again, just to get, kind of get it out of the way. So you have a, a, a very strange conversation about the meaning of the Confederate flag. Um, you have a scene early on of, uh, of, of gun rights. You have using a school shooting as a narrative Man, device. school shooting stuff is fucking weird it's, in it, this. It doesn't play well, I don't think. Um, well, it's the good guy with a gun thing, yeah, right? Oh, is the you whole, actually, my you God. You actually have two instances of good guy with a gun here because you have um, the contractor. Because the whole movie, we should set it up, I guess for those who haven't watched uh, Texas Chainsaw on Netflix yet, the whole movie is basically about a bunch of Austin influencer types yeah. uh, who are moving to Harlow, Texas, a literal ghost town where it seems like nobody lives there anymore. And they're going to turn it into their gentrified utopia. There's going to be art spaces, a comic book shop, a comic book shop. It sounds like the worst place on earth <laughs> really for does. me personally. <laughs> well, it's almost kind of like the hipster influencer version of like what Giuliani did to Times Square to where like, it's like, we're going to scrub this Texas thing free of anything relating to Texas itself. And it's going to be our, uh, like woke target, you know, like it's just, it's, he's very much again. And this is Alvarez, presenting you with with an archetype or a stereotype that he's he's making fun of because these kids unlike the kids in texas chainsaw massacre from 1974 um they're not innocents like they are very much made into the villains and leatherface might be the hero of this movie. They're actively unlikable. Um, like actively, like unlikable. the main the main sister, not the the hero girl, not not from uh, eighth grade, but um, Ellie. I forget her. I forget her name. Elsie Fisher. Elsie Fisher. Yeah, she's and she's good in everything, but her sister is so fucking unlikable from the beginning, and purposely so. Of you know what's weird is I thought that they were supposed to be lovers at first i thought they were oh. dating and it took me halfway through the movie to be like they're sisters because i thought the sisters things when they when they're pulled over by the kind of shitty uh, state trooper and i thought when she goes oh it's my sister i thought it was like a cover because they didn't want to tell this this straight white authority figure that they're gay in the back but then it took me a minute to be like oh no they're actually sisters this is fucking weird because their whole dynamic is odd it's strange because it's like well then the, the, the fucking sheriff it's gorman 
Right. From Aliens and from uh, uh, Hell, Hellbound. Right. And I was like, hell yeah. Like, I was like, well, this is definitely Europe. He's British. Yeah. Um, and I think, he, is he also in Life Force? I can't remember. But, sorry, anyway. but Probably because pro- everybody, like, if you were an actor <laughs> and you were British in the 80s, you were probably in Life Force. <laughs> Shit, was I in Life Force? Oh, fuck. I didn't forget about it. You're not um, British. I'm not British. Um, but You're Swedish. Swedish. There's... Um, there's this group of, of very unlikable people who go, like you said, they're trying to create this like kind of like liberal utopia of like, we're going to have, like you said, like restaurants and, and coffee shops and, and arts, art galleries and this whole thing. And it's what people complain. It's, it's the hyper or I guess exaggerate. I'm honestly not that exaggerating anymore, but it's what people talk about with Austin anymore is that, you know, Keep Austin weird is a vague dream that that we once had. Now it's just nothing but tech bros and high rises and coffee shops and like it's fucking sucks here. It's scrubbed completely free of the personality that that the, the town had when we both moved here some years ago. And it is worth noting that David Blue Garcia, who actually directed this movie, you know, Alvarez didn't direct it himself is an Austin native. I mean, he even worked as a director of photography on some local projects like Owen Edgerton's uh, Rooster Teeth movie, uh, Bloodfest. And, like, he didn't have any real input on the script, from what I'm told, which has also been uh, rewritten since its original drafts. I've been told by people who read it quite significantly. Um, But, you know, even if you don't write something, if you find some content inside of a script that you're assigned to direct and you can vibe with it, I bet that emphasizes it and brings it out a little more, you know? There was a... Well, there's a, early, early they stop at this gas station in the film and then they leave, the guy's like, gentrifuckers. Yeah. You know, and so that sets the tone, the, the theme of the whole movie. And um, I mean, I remember a couple, I think it was two years ago pre-COVID, but they had opened a new bodega in East Austin and it was two white owners who were basically co-opting Aztec culture right. and, and putting it on the on the wall. And it was this whole thing of like, you know, cultural appropriation. It's like very much is happening in Austin of these these New York investors come in and and so And that's what's happening in this too, is that they're taking over this town and they're waiting on a bus of investors who are behind them and they spot a Confederate flag and they basically lose their fucking minds. They're like, they can't see this or else they'll never invest. Like it's just a total fucking overreaction. And they go in to basically beg to go go take it down (laughs) themselves, not knowing that, uh, somebody's actually living in this, this orphanage. And yes, it's Alice Creed. I love her so much. Midsummer, right? Um, I'm not sure she's in Midsummer, but no, but she's in like uh, Sleepwalkers. Oh yeah, um, and I love her. Oh, she's the Borg Queen in First Contact, right? Um, and but she, um, the the center kind of like thrust is that you know she has been the reason we haven't had any killings from Leatherface. I don't even want to talk about the the, the timing and the age thing here, but because this is a direct sequel, much like Halloween 2018 was, that throws out. Yes. For the third time in the series? Third or fourth. Yeah, it completely ignores the other sequels. But she basically is a, has a um, an orphanage and has taken in kind of forgotten kids. And, and Leatherface, who was probably in his, like, I guess, supposed to be in his 20s um, in the original, or 20, um, basically escaped 
and she's kept him like she buried the she put the chainsaw in the wall which is pretty fucking cool um and like i like that shit hit it um and then he's she's kept him at bay like well, she's, she even says she's like we raised orphaned and way orphans and wayward youths yes here. and she and he was the latter very much a wayward youth and um they mistakenly are like, well, you don't know this house. Is for, looks like he's 40 in 1974, mind you. He has a worse build than I do. <laughs> he's dumpy. Yeah, that's he's, what I mean. Yeah, Gunner had I, a... I, I, don't, I don't buy that he was 20 in 1974 or however, so I don't know, again, how he ended up in this orphanage, but we're just going to go with it. Yeah, and he... But she protected, and I, li- I like that narrative thrust of, like, she protected him, there hasn't been any killings, and then... Once she is killed off, um, well, she she dies. She's a heart attack because they basically get in a fight with her saying, you can't live here. Well, they evict her. Yeah. They forcibly evict her from her home. Like I saw there was a tweet uh, that went up and they were like, and it was one this real indignant fucking tone from somebody that was like, oh, I can't believe this new Texas chainsaw tries to blame a black man for this woman's death after he's just going inside to ask her to take down a Confederate flag. And I'm like, hold the fucking phone. That's not what happens here. Like, yes, a black guy goes in and ask you to take down a Confederate flag, but they evict her. They forcibly evict her from her home. They bring that the fucking cops home. there. Yep. That, yeah. Then again, spoilers if you haven't seen this movie yet, sorry. But we later find out that they never actually foreclosed on this place or bought everything because they find the deed. Because the woman claims the whole time. She's like, yeah, I still have the deed. Like, it's around here somewhere, but it's kind of a mess. I don't know. I've lived here my whole fucking life. Yeah, they think she's a crazy person. Yeah. Just, you know, is, is and lying. she's wheeling around. And, ox- and the thing that sucks is that, like, again, this is this feels like Alvarez fucking with you a bit with the Confederate flag itself and having a black guy ask this white woman in this ghost town in Texas. Like, he knows what he's fucking doing here. But then actually having her be nice to them the whole time because she's like, yeah, sit down, have some, like, makes them sweet tea and even tries to, the thing that sets him off is that he even she even tries to connect with him by saying like we had many boys that look like you come through here and he freaks out basically like you're being racist blah 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 because the whole thing and she's trying to connect and she's trying to connect she's trying to make a genuine connection and he's losing it and the whole thing is fide and it feels like because he's had this happen twice in his career right because he had Evil Dead because he included the tree rape. From, from Sam Raimi's Evil Dead in his remake. And there was a big hullabaloo when that movie came out about that sequence because people started cheering in the fucking theater when this woman's raped by a tree. And that's fucked up. Yeah. But then people tried to... The, the big... The most reactionary wing of, of that outcry, let's say, was people being like, well, he wanted that reaction. He wanted them to freak out. And you're like, okay... And now, having seen plenty of his movies, I'm not sure that he didn't want that reaction. But he had to publicly address it and go through it. And, like, that was his first kind of, let's say, uh, tangle with, with the, the internet mob. That wants to, if they don't agree with what you want, like, what they see, they're going to go after you. And in a lot of cases, rightfully so. 
But then Don't Breathe had the big thing that you even talked about is that a lot of people got fucking pissed off about the sexual assault stuff in Don't Breathe. And again, <clears throat> rightfully so, because it, it, it it's, it's pretty rough. fucking gross. But this feels like an active middle finger to those t- those Twitter warrior types to where he's like, yeah, the protagonists of this movie, they're actually the antagonists. You know why? Because they take their values too fucking far and they present themselves as these righteous crusaders when really they're nothing but a bunch of thieves who are taking this woman's home out from under her. That's a pretty like straightforwardly provocative sentiment that he's injecting into this movie. Yeah, no. And I agree. And it, it gets you like involved because you're like, man, like fuck. And also again, they are very unlikable characters. Like the only, like you have your lead who is, 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 is the moral compass. And is basically telling her sister, like, I don't like this. This isn't right. This doesn't seem right. And then it it makes her sister look and realize that she's kind of a piece of shit too, that they took this, you know, not only, ended up killing this woman, but that's the reason they're all being killed. Well, Elsie Fisher has the best investigative mind too, because she's like, because the big debate becomes like, well, his cover story was, I left the deed back at the office. I don't have it here when he goes and looks for it. And Elsie Fisher's character goes, well, if she claims that we didn't have it in the first place and that she has it, wouldn't it just be in the house? Yeah. And that's what actually sets off the whole slasher movie sequence. Yes. Which let's just get to it outside of the weird political stuff in this movie, which there is a lot of this movie is just a straight up like 80 minute banger slasher film that wants to do nothing more than just brutalize people in the worst ways possible. 10 out of 10 on that, on that front. I, oh my God. I was in slasher heaven the whole time. I mean, that fucking door swinging scene where he uh, attacks the black, which kid. is a take on the original, yeah. the, the, the idea of doors. The and, sliding and, and, door. But I just love that visual of like every time the door would open and close, you would just see a new like motion hit swing in the knife or whatever. I was like, all right, that's pretty visually inventive. There, well, Fede and his team and his, his, in this director too, are similar to like James Wan and that they know they, the, the trickery. They like to do one. Well, like a lot of people compare don't breathe to panic room. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of finchery stuff oh. that he injects in that movie. Fuck. Yeah. Very, very much. Only the way the camera moves through the house and like through, through floors and, and, and that as well. Like regardless of whether or not you, you, vibe with his edgelord kind of bullshit. You can't deny that Fide and his boys are like, they're technically very uh, adept at their job. They're, they make, like you said, like kind of lean, mean horror films. And I love, you and I both love an under 90 minute horror film. Very similar to the way I, this one's barely 80. (laughs) Yeah. It's barely 80. And it's one of the reasons I love the Hills have eyes. Aja remake it's, that's a little bit longer, but that film is so tight and just and it just puts you over the coals, rakes you over the coals for like the whole time. Well, and that's the other thing is that like this movie has come out and people have gotten up. Okay, so like the arguments have gone both ways. Some people have accused it of being too woke, which doesn't make any fucking sense <laughs> to me if you paid attention. While other people have, have complained that it goes too far in like a reactionary direction yeah. politically. But the one thing that I found that's unified these people is that a lot, a lot of folks have been like, man, it's crazy because horror movies don't get like this overtly political. And I instantly thought of Aja's 
Hills Have Eyes remake. Oh my god. Where a man fucking stabs a mutant through the neck with a fucking American flag. And I'm like, guys, was that too subtle for you? Like, do we have to spell it? Like, do these movies have to now come with like Dune style guides that outline what the fucking politics you're supposed to take away from them is? Because that's nuts, man. No, the, and I, I can just forget again, like, does it work as a horror film? Yes. Is it a banger? Yes. The, I would kill to watch this with an audience. Dude, I, who was I, actually into it. And I was supposed to go last week and I skipped it. I was right. I had that ticket and I was like, ah, fuck it all. I don't know if I'm in the mood. Now that I know how good it is, I wish I would have gone and seen that as a double feature with the original. Would have been awesome. Like I, I regret that I didn't go last Thursday. I still don't know if I would want to watch this as a double feature with the original for the same reason that I don't want to watch I did watch a double feature of Halloween and Halloween 2018 at beyond fest when that movie mm. first came out and it did not work. Like it just highlighted, you can't watch the ninth movie in a franchise next to the fucking like, like, like the King of Kings, you know, you're the you're, masterpiece. Yeah. Like that movie's not going to stand a goddamn chance in hell. Like, that's how I felt. Like that day was even worse because it was a triple feature. It was Black Christmas, then Halloween, then Halloween 2018. And by the time you got to Halloween 2018, you're like, do we need this? And I probably would have felt the same way, especially once the Sally Hardesty stuff rolls around in this because they're totally doing Laurie uh, Strode the older. Laurie Strode older. Like, I also don't buy for a fucking minute that Sally is uh a Texas Ranger who spent her whole life hunting Leatherface. Like, okay, first off, you're. I know that they throw they they do write it off with like one gag, where like Elsie Fisher ta- is talking to the dude behind the counter and is like, "Oh man, she spent forty years looking for him. That's crazy." And he's like, "Well, he was wearing a mask," and I'm like, "Right, okay, funny joke, guys." But, like, if you're searching for this dude in 40 years and you know pretty much, like, you have a pretty centralized area where you can go. Like, it wasn't like Leatherface was just like, you know what? I'm moving to Oklahoma now for a little bit. I might come back to Texas later. 40 years, you couldn't find this motherfucker in Pflugerville? Like, come on, dude. I love... um, Pretty shitty ranger. Yeah, and that, that whole thing is dumb and, like, she is super ineffectual to the plot too. Like she kind of comes in and go, she's like almost like she's like Halloran in the shiny. She's barely in. The, yeah, yeah. She's barely in the movie. Like she just gets the call and they, I think what makes or highlights how egregious the Sally Hardesty, like legacy stuff, because it feels like a studio note. It feels yeah. like, Hey, David Gordon Green's Halloween was a big hit. You know what you should do for day is probably bring this legacy character back. And honestly, this movie does suffer from, having to come out a month after scream just did an entire, like, yeah, here's my college essay on the reboot. Cool. You know? So we kind of know what we're getting here, but it's just, it, it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. Like I would have liked also the, the thematic symmetry of like the original Texas chainsaw was created by this outsider cadre of, of, of hippies counterculture types who had something to genuinely express about the paranoia that they're, they're experiencing during the Vietnam era. Like the kids who are the gentrifuckers in this, they would have been the hippies of their day. 
And it, it, I like the thematic kind of symmetry there of being like, and again, this is Alvarez being kind of a dick, but it's almost like, hey, back then, like when you were really left leaning and progressive, blah, 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 like you were a hippie. You were fighting the Vietnam War. Like it's a real boomer almost like yeah. idea of like you were <clears throat> protesting the Vietnam War, smoking dope and free love and just out there on the front lines. These kids are on fucking Instagram and becoming chefs and thinking that's going to like change the world. And you're like, yeah. But I mean, you didn't need Sally for any of that shit. It just is like, that's just how these movies are made now. Yeah. And she, again, she just, she literally comes in to do like, save them for one second and it's like all right whatever and And sally's old as fuck while leatherface still moves like a spry refrigerator perry at 79 it's it's the same problem with the halloween halloween kills you know it's like this guy's supposed to be in his like 60s nick castle is basically dust yeah he's murdering people (laughs) left and right old dusty balls nick is you know (laughs) supposed to be killing but there's like, like what, uh, how funny would it have been though if fucking Leatherface in this moves like De Niro and the Irishman, just like hobbling around chasing some of the chainsaw, just real stiff. <laughs> well, there's there's a couple other things that I that this would be again the Sally thing I think is dumb, but there's a couple things that it but does. those scenes work. That's the thing that's weird about it is that it's dumb, but I like I. In the moment, those scenes still entertain me. It's not until later to where I went, mm, I don't know. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because you talked earlier about, you know, there's the original film and each, a lot of them bring new elements to the series that become staples. And so, you know, for instance, the reuse of the, of the Vigo character, you know, and that kind of the sexier version of the, of the Sawyer family and how he can like trick you into kind of yeah. joining. Um, the Ahab, though, that comes in, with um with Dennis Hopper into we have, we have right. a couple Ahabs that run out throughout the it's series. It's like Stephen Dorff is is essentially the play on Dennis Hopper. He's the most boring version of that. Yes, and then Sally Hardesty is again doing our Ahab. She's the Ahab in this one, and so you get to pull that in. There's a couple things that I think really again we don't get. My favorite thing about a lot of the films is not Leatherface, but the the family around him and how they all work together. Not and hot women. There's and, no hot women. Yeah, exactly. Just like bald hot women. Again, like Jordana Brewster in the beginning, and um, but I love that they make you wait for the chainsaw. Like um, I remember seeing an interview with Stephen Schwartz, the guy who wrote Wicked um, and sure. wrote like Godspell, and he said he he always learned how to do good storytelling from when he saw a chorus line for the first time. He said, you're seeing a musical called The Chorus Line. And you're like, all right, fuck this. It's going to be a bunch of chorus lines, right? And there's a scene where they start the chorus line, but they stop it. And that they work the audience up into a frenzy of like, just give me the fucking chorus line. And when it finally happens, they cheer. You make the person wait for it. Right. And a lot of these movies, these these prequel ones too, like the, the first scene of Leatherface from 2017, you're like, here's your chainsaw. And it's like supposed to be this like, you know, this oh, like- Oh, the birthday present y- thing in the beginning yeah. of Leatherface. Yeah, I hate that. I'm sorry. I just, I no, think- No, that scene's dumb. It's just this stupid- I do like the the feeding of the, the intestines out of the, the fucking birthday cake when they give it to the- That part's gross. That was, yeah. And that was cool. But it's the same like- this whole like wink to the audience of like, we know you like this prequel shit. Here's when he got this saw. I'm like, fuck that. This one is like, he, he uses everything but the chainsaw. 
And finally you get him busting the wall because now he's going to get it. And when you finally get it, it's like you cheer because you're finally getting the chainsaw on the chainsaw. But also you haven't missed it horribly. It's all been really badass until then. Like he's a really capable killer. But let's, we got to talk about the bus scene. Yeah. This is the only chainsaw (laughs) massacre in the entire franchise. Like sure, other people are murdered with chainsaws here and there. But I don't think enough people to to count as a massacre. This is a fucking massacre. He's like lifting people off the ground and pirouetting, taking like heads off, limbs. And again, it all starts because this is the investor's bus that they're in the back drinking like craft liquor and listening to like really shitty like yep. post pitchfork like electro music. And the the victims who have already run afoul of Leatherface run to the back of the bus and Leatherface goes back there and they all hold up their phones and start filming and go, hey, you do anything, you're canceled, bro. And then he basically murders cancel culture. And I'm like, Fide, my man, you are fucking out of your mind. It is one of the most joy. It's joyfully gory in the way that some of the scenes in Dead Alive are. Yeah. Where it's that level it's gleefully gross. of just like of a I've always it's one of the things you don't see in a lot of slashers is a killer taking on a lot of people at once. I've always wanted a film of basically just like John Wick, the slasher, where he just goes into giant parties and just murders them from the top floor to the bottom floor. And this is that like this is like that level of. What? And it, and it's not just repetitive, too. It's like he gets the one guy and gets him, like, in the crook of his neck and just saws yeah. down into I love him. that shit. It's just like, he's, he's, it's very, like... Um, Any kind of, like, off-kilter bodily damage, <laughs> boner central for me. Yes, yeah. It's very much like the, um, what's his name? Stephen Rhea death and interviewed the vampire. Yeah, fucking awesome. With the, with the scythe. It's just so, like... And then his, his body, like, slides yep. down. Ugh, it's so good. It's just fucking gold, you know? But like it does whole, Tom Savini proud, even though I think there's a, a good amount of digital gore here mm-hmm. and there, like some splatters. It's totally. But I mean, like they were they were high on the, the practical stuff for Evil Dead. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we get some behind the scenes stuff from fucking the content dump that is Netflix. That's like and Fede Alvarez was just shooting caro syrup everywhere. I want I'd like to own this on disc. I'd love to, because I, 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 I own every other one. Too. I mean, I want the I want the 4K disc for this, I and mean, hopefully they'll release it. Netflix it's isn't a great isn't a, looking fucking movie. It looks, it's gorgeous. Like you know what it actually reminded me of when I was thinking of in a, in a production design as well was the House of Wax remake from 05. Yeah. Very much that ghost town. That's like which feels like a Texas Chainsaw riff because it. Yep, it's a House of Wax remake, but it it's it's tourist trap. Yeah, but for you know, it's a church. Was trip. that Dark Castle? I believe so. Yeah, because that's why we call it Sarah too. He's awesome. Yeah, I love that guy. I mean, he did Shallows, right? Yeah, that would be fucking rules. And the commuter, he was big in that that the Liam Neeson yeah. revival with like the commuter and run all night and nonstop. He did Jungle Cruise. Like they gave him a big like that was his biggest movie. Yeah, like, fuck 200, that shit. Yeah, no, I want him making. Well, yeah, me too. Twenty million, thirty million dollar like borderline DTV action films because I just think he's like the commuter has Liam Neeson beating a man with a guitar at one point <laughs> on a fucking train. You're like, this doesn't need to exist, but I'm so goddamn glad that it does, man. 
But yeah, I mean, I don't really know how much more I have on Texas Chainsaw, the new one, because it's lean, it's mean, it, it's really gross. It it has a point of view, which I, I particularly enjoy, even if other people don't. I, here's the thing. This movie has been adrift and all the different problems that we've illustrated with it for so many years. It was just fun to watch one of these movies that at least had a distinct point of view and sense of purpose regardless of whether or not I found the point of view revolting. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, I know you like Leatherface more than I did from a 17, but, you know, that film feels like, it's it's way off the mark from what I imagine right. Texas Chainsaw is. It's, like, it's almost whoa. like Texas Chainsaw name only. Exactly, where it's like, holy shit. And then this one feels like a return to form. It's confidently made. It's, it's very similar, again, I like the Evil Dead remake, where it's like, this is a guy who knows what he's doing, like good practical effects, uh, honestly a solid script. Like it's not like they're unlikable characters, but like it's good, it's well paced, everything. Like Again, it has something on its mind. Like they sat down and they're like, wait, hold on. You know all the people that people blame for fucking up Austin? What if we made a whole movie about Leatherface murdering the shit out of them? And what's more Texas than that? Exactly. You know, like I love that. Well, Martin, it's been a great season. It has been. It's been a lot Un of fun. Unlike last season, uh, there's going to be much, much more of us uh, very soon. There's not going to be any mystery. There will be a season three. But stay tuned for Secret Handshake. We'll see you soon. Yep. Well, when the sun goes down and the moon comes up. Good mark. Yeah, I cruise through the city and I roam the streets. I'm looking for something that is nice to eat. You better duck when I show up. The Google Mark.